This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. This is not a regular player, this is not a pretty good quarterback. This is an all time great. Is he? A strange bird off the field? He's a little nuts, I think. Okay? That's his deal. Is he really weird? Yeah. You don't have to hang out with him. You just have to put on your Jet jersey, go to the stadium, and watch him do his thing, which is move the Jets down the field and into the end zone, which is something you have not had in years. Subscribe to the Mike Francesa podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Mike Missanelli Podcast. Oh, man, we're getting closer to the Super Bowl Eagles and Chiefs. This is episode number 53 of the Mike Missanelli Podcast, doing it on Friday, February 10th, brought to us by the great people at Bet Rivers. You know, in, a, in a later podcast, uh, I guess we'll do one tomorrow. We'll do some prop bets that you can find on Bet Rivers. So for right now, we're going to give our final analysis of this game. We've been analyzing the Super Bowl all week with various guests and various opinions and various data points and all that. Now, coming up today, we're going to have a comprehensive look, a final look at the big game. We're also going to check in with Chiefs reporter. That's right. He reports on the Chiefs for the Associated Press in Kansas City. His name's Dave Scaretta. We'll get what the Chiefs have planned and what they have up their sleeve for the Super Bowl. And a one-on-one interview today with the legendary Merrill Reese, who will be calling the game on WIP, the Super Bowl. Another Super Bowl for Merrill. He keeps going on and on and on. But first... All right, let's take a final look at the matchup of this game and go over some key questions. So I'm going to boil it down now to the key questions and the key factors in this game. Number one for me, can the Chiefs curtail the Eagles' rushing attack? I mean, everybody on earth knows that the Eagles run the ball. That's where the success comes from with Jalen Hurts' RPOs with a zone read. Their style is to run the ball. They usually get ahead. That makes the run more effective. They grind out the clock. They do all those things that the old school football guys wanted to do back in the day. Screw the Pat Mahomes way of playing football. The Eagles want to run the ball and then go off of that. So let's look at it. The Chiefs against the run. Very middling. Not a great team against the run. So you think that would play into the Eagles' hands. Also, versus the RPO style of running attack. The Chiefs give up 4.7 yards per carry. That's 19th in the league. If I go first two RPOs, if I do my math right, that's 9.4. Quarterback sneak first down, right? Now, I don't know if they're going to do it because here's what I think could happen here. The Chiefs are also mediocre in covering wide receiver number ones. 
it is possible that the conclusion here is the Eagles pass early, get up by getting the ball down the field with the pass, get that lead, get early successful drives, and then salt the game away with their game plan style of running the football. I actually think that's going to happen. I actually think the Eagles are going to come out and throw the ball early instead of establishing the run early. I think they get chunk yardage. I think they get down the field. I think they can take a 7 nothing lead in this game. And when they get that lead, you've seen the Eagles all year, how they play with a lead. It's the perfect scenario for them. All right, let's go to key factor number two. These are obvious key factors. So I'm not some football genius here presenting all these things to you. Hassan Reddick versus Andrew Wiley. He's the weakest tackle they have. On the other side, they're pretty stout. Can they get to Mahomes with Hassan Reddick? You're going to think that Andy Reid is going to come up with some kind of protection on that side to protect from Reddick wreaking havoc early in the game. Andy Reid is a smart coach. He knows, you know, your Uncle Louie knows that Hassan Reddick getting pressure on the quarterback is going to be key in the game. Now, if they do get to him with Reddick, can they prevent the Mahomes fluky play. It's one thing getting heat on him. It's the other thing when this kid, this kid dabbles around and finds a play and defeats the pressure that you just put on him. So they go hand in hand. Now, the weak link, the weak link is on the other side of the Eagles offensive line. So let's let's look at uh, the, the Malata situation, all right? Because this is another factor. The Chiefs, obviously have uh, Frank Clark on that side. And, and and we're certainly worried about the big defensive tackle on the other side. Uh, Frank Clark and George Karloftis versus Mylotta is also, if you're going to look at the Hassan Red against Wiley, you also got to balance it by looking at that. They may attack that side because Mylotta is their obvious, their weakest link. All right, let's go number three, because let's bring Chris uh, uh, Jones into this equation. The guards and Jason Kelsey, for maybe the first time in, in a lot of games, are going to be stressed with Chris Jones. Um, the Spagnola plan is probably going to be this. You go wide. You keep Jalen Hurts in the pocket. If you're going to rush that way, you don't make, let him get outside that pocket. You keep him in there. And then you hope that Jones can disrupt in the middle. Let's look. He has eight sacks in the fourth quarters. It's pretty good. He rises to an occasion in the fourth quarter. It's where the Eagles have to have a lead. He also has a 20.5 win rate on plays, on every play, and that includes mostly getting double teamed. You look at the guards, you look at Kelly. I mean, this is a very important part of this game. You got to focus on that. Also, Spagnola likes to blitz. Jalen is not great versus the Blitz. So you look at all these factors here on how the Chiefs can curtail what the Eagles do. Now look, look at some other elements here, just kind of get random. It's the number one pass defense, which is the Eagles, versus the number one passing offense, which is the Chiefs. We talked about this earlier in the week. Uh, this has happened three times in the Super Bowl where the number one passing offense is going against the number one pass defense. In those three situations, the defense has won the day. In fact, the defense 
has won by an average of 31 points in those three games, which tells you one thing. Maybe it doesn't matter that you have this high-potent passing offense because if you have the pass defense, you're going to defeat it. And it doesn't matter if it's Mahomes or uh, Schlaholms. You know, it, it really doesn't matter at this point. That tells you that the defense has a decided advantage. Now, a lot of factors go into that, obviously. Rush on the quarterback and all those kind of things. But let's just go, use that for a base. The Eagles have a decided edge there. Uh, number two, the Eagles' biggest weakness. Well, they don't have many weaknesses, but if you're going to nitpick, the fact of the matter is they're, they're, they're not great against good running attacks. Uh, and um, they're not good against running backs that catch the ball out of the backfield. Now, uh, the, the Chiefs are okay running the ball. Uh, Isaiah Pacheco runs hard. He, he's really come along. Uh, and, but they use him a lot out of the backfield. That's going to be a factor for the Eagles with the Pacheco-McKinnon situation coming out of the backfield. Number three, Kansas City wide receivers are not great. But they've made enough plays, even though they're all banged up, and right now they're using Juju Smith-Schuster and Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Those guys have been able to make plays, but, you know, listen, I'm not terrified by those guys going to bust you. So I think the Eagles secondary has the advantage there. And, in fact, they hold wide receivers to an 81.5 rate, which is excellent. So that by that measure, it's going to tell you the wide receivers – really um, don't have the edge against what the Eagles are going to present. And you go back to the number one pass defense versus the number one uh, uh, passing offense, and that plays right into that. So now let's go with these, uh, these minor details, although they're not minor. The Kelsey factor. They're going to have to target him a lot. They do target him a lot. Now, I don't know what the offensive game plan for Andy Reid will be, but let's look at what the Eagles' defensive game plan will be for Kelsey. Do you bang him at the line, which is what Seth Joyner was saying when we had him on? Do you throw him off stride a little bit? Do you cover him with a linebacker? Or do you have to, the necessity of having C.J. Garner-Johnson cover him at all times, which may open up other things in the back end? I don't know how they're going to cover him, but it's a factor. Obviously, he's their best player. He's their best receiver, their most dangerous receiver. He's probably going to get loose for a touchdown. All right. The Mahomes factor. I mean, I don't really have to sit here and tell you how magic he is. He's got a 106.1 rating as a quarterback in the playoffs. That's the highest rating of any playoff quarterback that's ever played. Okay? So, he's dangerous. We all know he's dangerous. And then finally, to me, uh, the, the, the ultimate question for this game has nothing to do with what we just talked about, X and O's. It has to do with something that you can't even put your hands around. And it's, um, are we taking this game too much for granted? Are we not respecting the Chiefs enough? I don't think I have ever, you know, maybe you go back to the Flyers in the 70s where you knew that team was going to win every freaking game, right? Like they they were that good. Um, I've never seen such positivity this week with this game. And it makes me nervous. It really does. I wish people were a little more scared about this game because that would convince me more not to worry about the Eagles winning the game. But when everybody seems to be on one side of the fence, and I even think nationally they're on that side of the fence, I'm not hearing anybody talk about how the Chiefs are going to win this game. 
I'm hearing everything about the Eagles, locally and nationally. And I go, hmm, well, with that, I would expect that the line would bunch up. It's not. It's holding fast at a point and a half. That scares me, all right? So I don't know how to handle that. Let's, let's bring Darren, producer Darren in here. Darren, are, are we disrespecting the Chiefs a little bit? They're more the more experienced team. They have the more experienced coach uh, who's been there before. This coach is a second-year coach who has not been there before. The quarterback has not been there before. Talk to me. Of all the conversations, Mike, I have had about this game this week, this is the one I've had the most. And I think it comes down to this. If you boil it down, Philly and our fan base is just not used to being in the catbird seat. We're not used to being on the perch. We're not used to having the clear best team in football or any sport, really. I mean, when's the last time you could say that a Philadelphia team was so clearly the best team in the sport I, I can't really think of the last time I'm sure it's happened but I can't think of it we're not used to it we're used to the underdog mentality which I'm, I'm kind of tired of the underdog mentality storyline but that's what I think it comes down to for me anyway I'm not used to just being a fan of the clearly best team in football I think that has a lot to do with it um, what does scare me is I think it's something like 70 some odd percent of the money is on the Eagles. And like you said, that line hasn't moved. Now, there's a flip side to that coin in that Vegas is, was never going to let this game get to three points, regardless of who the favorite is. Because in this game with two number one seeds and the two teams that are clearly the best teams in the conference at this point, if, if one team gets to three, a flood of cash is going to go on the other side and taking the points. An absolute flood. I never thought the line would ever get to three. Uh, but it does scare me a bit, like you said. Line hasn't moved yet. I think it's 76% of the money is on the Eagles. That is, that, that, that's a red flag for me. That makes me nervous. But I just think a lot of it is, we're just not used to this. Uh, I'm not used to the, you know, the, you know, the ch- everybody being so chesty, particularly in a championship game. You've seen it in regular season games. Yeah, I don't like it either. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't like the fact that everybody's chesty, and I think this game is going to go down to the wire. It may be decided by uh, a last-minute kick. I mean, I, I really don't, because, but these people are t- saying that the Eagles win by 14, the Eagles win by 10. I don't think it's going to happen that way. I really don't. I think the Eagles are going to win the game. Now, you just said something that obviously triggered a, a, a movie for me. And I don't know if you know that you did it. Sometimes, and this has nothing to do with the Super Bowl. This yeah. is this is what we do on this podcast. We kind of venture off, right? You just said heat. Well, there's a flip side to that coin. Now, I immediately went into one of my favorite scenes in one of my favorite movies, and the movie is Heat, and it was Pacino and De Niro sitting at the diner. Now, did that just get into your head and become part of your vernacular because of that movie? Because sometimes movie lines become part of my vernacular. No, it didn't. But as soon as you said it, I went to the scene when I heard you uh-huh. say it. But I didn't think of it when I said it. But as soon as I heard you say it, uh-huh. I saw De Niro in the diner scene. There's a flip side to that coin. It's so, exactly yeah. what he did. After Pacino explained to him how he's going to have to take him down. Yes. 
And and De Niro goes a flip side to that coin. Yeah. So that's a that was a that was beautiful work by you. So there it is. I think that's going to be our final analysis, at least my final analysis of this game. We've talked about it all week. I can't split the the, the P a- anymore. I can't split the atom. <laughs> uh, right. I, it is what it is. We have talked about it. We've laid it all out, and now it's just a matter of watching the game. It's the Mike Mussinelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All righty. Eagles and Chiefs, Super Bowl, and we need to get the other side. Um, you know, everybody in Philly is crazy about the Eagles winning this game, and I think they might be taking the Kansas City Chiefs a little lightly. The man that covers the Chiefs for the Associated Press out in Kansas City, he is uh, on site in Arizona. His name is Dave Scaretta. Dave, welcome to the Mike Missinelli Podcast. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? Doing good. All right, so let's let's look at this. This is old hat now for, for the Chiefs. Uh, and they have this uh, quarterback who can make plays like at any second. Uh, but somehow uh, uh, the whole world thinks that the Eagles are the side in this game. So um, from your perspective, uh, you know, when you examine this game uh, and you go over every little tidbit, uh, what do you come out to, uh, with? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because when you start lining up those two rosters, one right next to each other, and you say quarterback versus quarterback, tight end, tight end, receiver, receiver, all the way down the line. It's hard not to come to the conclusion that the Eagles just have a better roster from one to 53. But then you start looking at the quarterback versus the quarterback and Pat Mahomes is probably quite a bit better than Jalen Hurts at this point. And so then you start parsing those those position by positions. And and maybe that's where you, you kind of start to come up with the idea that the Chiefs, especially having been here, like you said, uh, three times now in the last four years that, that the Chiefs probably uh, have a lot of people convinced that they're going to win it. Yeah, and, and the point spread indicates that. I mean, it's, it's one and a half. It's down from two and a half. So the Chiefs are getting a little support. Uh, what do you think the Chiefs would have to do to win this game? I mean, they got to stop the run, obviously. That's, uh, that's what's kind of been carrying the Eagles through the playoffs, and that's something the Chiefs haven't done a great job of. Um, they did a little bit better against the, the Bengals in the AFC Championship, but where they really excelled there was getting after Joe Burrow, which nobody's done. So uh, if they can put pressure on Jalen Hurts, uh, keep him in the pocket, keep him from running, try to slow down the run game, um, at least defensively, that's that's going to be what the key is. Uh, Steve Spagnola is well known here. I know him uh, pretty well also. And uh, I'm curious how he defends the RPO. I mean, let's face it, the whole thing revolves around Jalen Hurts and his ability to, to keep the ball uh, and the zone reads that he makes always seems to have the Eagles have a plus one advantage on that. Uh, but he's not that good against the blitz. Now, if you blitz, he's got the mobility to get outside that blitz and really hurt you. So how do you think Spagnola plays this? Has he played against these kind of zone read quarterbacks before this year? And how's he done against them? Yeah, you know what? We actually talked about this uh, uh, last week before they came out here to the desert. And and he actually likened it a lot to a, to a, a college offense, basically. Uh, a lot of the RPO stuff that, that teams are doing in college. And so he actually went and talked to some college coaches and said, hey, how would we defend what we're doing here? And um, Frank Clark, uh, one of the Chiefs defensive ends, also talked about how it was very much a college like offense and he was thinking back to when he was at Michigan and some of the things he did there to stop some of those RPO things so I think the Chiefs have uh, an idea of what they want to do exactly what that is I'm not sure you mentioned Steve Spagnuolo we all know that he comes up with these crazy blitzes um, 
how exactly you blitz Jalen Hurts and, like you said, keep him from scrambling and killing you with his feet is is a whole nother ball game. Do you think he will test him early at, to just to see what's up? And and conversely, I think the Eagles probably would have to test Mahomes early. But uh, what do you, you know? He he's got to force him to throw the football and. His last appearance, he didn't throw the football very well, which indicates the shoulder maybe is still a little bulky on him. Sure, the shoulder is definitely a big thing. And I think, uh, it, like you said, testing Mahomes early, I think the Eagles are going to try to test him and test his ankle, which uh, is not going to be 100%. Uh, it's going to be a lot closer than it was in, in the AFC Championship game. The difference in testing these two quarterbacks, obviously, is this is Pat's third Super Bowl. He's been here. He knows what it's like. He knows the lights and all the attention and everything. And this is the first time for Jalen Hurts. I mean, this is a big step up, a huge stage for him. Uh, I think the Chiefs are probably going to come after him early and try to rattle him, try to get him feeling uncomfortable. Let's look at the Chiefs' offense and what they can do against this defense. Now, I can't account for the, the just the innovative plays that he makes that, that, that turn into monster plays and, and, and a lot of them touchdowns. But if the template is to rush the football consistently against the Eagles, keep their offense off the field, it's not really what the Chiefs do, is it? No, it's not. And, and their numbers in, in the playoffs running the ball are way inflated by a couple of long runs by Isaiah Pacheco. Uh, they haven't run the ball well. They haven't run it well all season. Um, and so it's really no way to expect them to do it right now. I will say what the Chiefs do get away with doing a lot is throwing a lot of screen passes to their running backs. Jarek McKinnon has been a revelation this season. He's got like nine touchdown catches. Um, That kind of acts as their running game sometimes. And I think that's something the Chiefs are really going to lean on to keep the Eagles off balance. I think one of the one of the parlays was like Isaiah Pacheco over 12 and a half receiving yards. And, and if I'm a, I'm a betting man, I'm hammering that one all day because I think the chiefs are going to try to hit those running backs out of the backfield and, and use that as a, a way to kind of loosen up that Eagles defensive front. Yeah. It's classic Andy Reed, by the way, getting those uh, running backs or the little guys in space. Uh, but the, the big matchup I, I see as far as Mahomes goes and, and, and how they will test them early w- with the ankle uh, there seems to be a mismatch with the uh, with the right tackle Wiley against Hassan Reddick, and I'm curious to know whether that that puts two tight ends in play or it puts Kelsey in play to to stay in a little longer, which which maybe defeats his middle of the field expertise. How do you see that match? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, Wiley is certainly the the weak element of this whole offensive front, which is very good. It's been very good all season. Uh, all of those guys have graded out really highly except Wiley and obviously uh, the Eagles are going to attack there the problem is like you said if you if you try to chip somebody with Kelsey or you try to leave him in well then you're taking arguably your best pass catcher off the field or or out of rhythm or uh, you're eliminating what he can do so uh, it's a it's a it's a difficult situation. I think we'll see a lot of two tight end sets. The Chiefs brought Jody, Jody Fortson, who was on injury reserve back uh, last week. So they'll have him in the in the mix also. So they have some options if they want to go two tight ends, even three tight ends, and, and try to help Wiley out a little bit. Talking to Dave Scretti, he covers the Chiefs for uh, the Associated Press. And uh, uh, Dave, let's talk about Andy Reid a little bit. Because, you know, here people, it's funny because time has gone by. And uh, he's more revered now as time is going by. But but at the time, <laughs> there was a lot of heat on him here. Uh, be, and you know, to be fair, he, he built uh, a pretty good regime of Eagles football 
uh, but didn't win anything. And, and I remember being on talk radio and I was pretty hard on Andy. And I, I remember saying he was the only coach that was allowed to coach that long, 12 years without winning a Super Bowl. There was only one other coach. It was Jeff Fisher who had the job that long. People get tired of not winning a Super Bowl and organizations uh, try to move on. But from your observation of him when he first got there to where, where he is now, just give me your overall assessment of what he's about as the Kansas City head coach and not the Eagles head coach. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think a lot of people outside of Kansas City don't understand what a total dumpster fire this place was before he arrived. I mean, they won two games a year. He showed up. Uh, they had a murder-suicide in the parking lot involving a, a linebacker. They had planes flying over Airhead Stadiums with signs to fire Scott Pioli, the GM at the time, fire everybody. Um, there was a lot of pressure on the owner, Clark Hunt, because he was not his father who founded the team, who founded the AFL. Clark Hunt wasn't living up to expectations as an owner. Um, there was a lot of animosity toward the Chiefs, and, and it probably was exacerbated a little bit because we started to see the Kansas City Royals on the rise and, and Kansas City becoming a baseball town a little bit. And so into this kind of mess stepped Andy Reid, and, and he was a guy that brought instant credibility, um, had, as you said, a lot of success in Philadelphia, but he was, mostly he just calmed everything down. Um, you know, they, they, his first season, they went from two wins to a winning team, and, and they really haven't looked back. Now, here we are 10 years down the road, and I think we're in kind of a, a weird situation because if they don't win this game, then all of a sudden Andy Reid still only has the one Super Bowl. He still only has it with Patrick Mahomes. Meanwhile, the Eagles, since he arrived in Kansas City, would have won two Super Bowls. So you start wondering, you know, does Andy need this as much as anybody to kind of polish off what most people think is going to be a Hall of Fame career? Uh, so, so um, when you, how is he to deal with out there? He's great. Uh, he seems to say all the right things. I think he learned from, from his Philadelphia experience to to let things blow off his because he was dreadful in, in his press conferences here for the longest time. Yeah, I, his his press conferences are about the same as they were in Philadelphia, from what I gather. I mean, he doesn't say much. He's um, especially on Friday. He's he's in and out and done and. But but there are times, and like in training camp, he meets with uh, some of us beat writers just in his dorm room. You know, he's sitting in there in a t-shirt, and he's got his crap all over the place, and and it's just he's talking about football, and he's drawing things up on the whiteboard, and uh, he's so excited about the game. And when you can get him in that setting, uh, away from a podium and TV cameras and stuff, he's great to deal with. He's he's. He, he, he'll talk about wanting to be a sports writer growing up, which is kind of cool for us in the sports writing business. Um, obviously, he picked a much wiser path. Um, but he's great to deal with in those settings. And I think as a media person, we also came from Todd Haley, who was very difficult to deal with as a as a head coach. Uh, Romeo Cornell, who was a, kind of a lovable teddy bear, but, um, you know, the success wasn't there on the field. So having Andy just bring that professionalism too was, was kind of nice for us. Uh, so why do you think, I mean, players say the same thing about him. I love playing for him. I, I don't know what it is that exactly that he does, but it, it's evident that, that he gets players to play the best for him. Well, what do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's hard to say without being in the locker room, you know, every once in a while, like just like the Eagles, I'm sure the chiefs will post on their Twitter, like a little snippet of like, 
Andy walking into the locker room after a game and giving the post game speech and stuff. And he, and you see it then that how the players just sort of gravitate toward him. Um, I think he lets them be themselves, uh, which is a big thing in the NFL. Um, he doesn't try to make players kind of conform to what he wants. Um, a lot of players have said that when they come here. Um, and I think that's probably when players play the best. It's probably when all of us do our best, when we're given the latitude to kind of do our own thing a little bit. And, um, and Andy has found, you know, probably with just experience, found that happy medium between letting guys do what they want, but also kind of having things under control. Uh, the, the, the fan bases are uh, a, a little bit different here. Uh, although I, you know, I, I, the Philadelphia, this Philadelphia bad mentality seems to be overblown by a, a, a lot of people. But you, you've been able to study both fan bases. What kind of a fan base is the Chiefs fan base compared to what the Eagles fan base is? Uh, I mean, Andy has said it himself that it's a, it's a whole lot easier here than it was in Philly. And, um, you know, like you said, the reputation is probably blown out of proportion in Philadelphia a little bit. But it is a difficult place to win. I think that... Uh, teams and, and managers and coaches and across all the different leagues would probably say that it's a, a hard city and Kansas city is kind of just this happy place on the prairie where like if you take us to the playoffs a few times, we'll be happy. And, and that's what makes what Andy has accomplished here all the more incredible. I mean, look, this team didn't win a championship for 50 years before Andy won the super bowl in 2020. So, uh, it, it's changed a little bit from just being happy to be there. Like now, now they want to win. Chiefs fans want to win. It's amazing at his transformation because he so desperately knows he needs playmakers when he went to Kansas City. He didn't really think that here until he got Terrell Owens, and then that whole thing blew up. Uh, so let's get to the nitty-gritty. I'm going to ask you some some uh, football-related questions. These are hypothetical questions, but uh, I want to uh, hear you, what your feel is. So the first question I'll ask you, um, will the Chiefs be able to control the Eagles' running game? Uh No. I think that's going to be the key for the Eagles. I think the Chiefs are excellent at rushing the passer. I think their Achilles heel is stopping the run. Uh, if the Eagles can control the tempo and control the ground game, control the clock, then they're going to have a, a huge advantage. All right. Second question is the, the Reddick situation. Does that mess up Mahomes or will they be able to control that? I think they'll be able to control that. I think he's going to be a lot more mobile than he was in the AFC Championship game. And if you saw him make that run at the end of that game to set up the winning field goal, he looked just fine. So uh, I think he'll be able to escape and and elude the pass rush and, and try to help out that offensive line. And, and it, I mean, it's going to be a great battle up front. So uh, Mahomes is going to have to be mobile. Do the Chiefs have enough talent right now at wide receiver to really uh, heighten what Mahomes does? I would say no. Well, we know Kelsey's going to get 12 targets. Huh? They like the, the, the hyphenated wide receivers. Yeah, are we including Kelsey as a wide receiver? That that changes it a little bit. But uh, no, I mean, Juju Smith-Schuster hasn't been like a number one guy. Marquez Valdez-Scanley hasn't been like a number one guy. Mahomes has set a career high for passing yards without Tyreek Hill this year too. So maybe he doesn't need that true number one guy. And, and he's good with just a bunch of number twos and threes. Okay. Uh, um, two uh, uh, last things here. Um, you, were you aware that the number one defense versus the pass passing game versus the number one passing game, that the defense has won by an average of 31 points? I did not know that. <laughs> Does that mean anything to you? Uh, I mean, did any of those games involve Patrick Mahomes? I, that's the perfect answer. I mean, that's that is the journalist answer. 
So you got to put Patrick Mahomes in there. Uh, and and last thing is, um, Kansas City's run defense versus the RPO this year was mediocre. It's nineteenth in the league. I don't know how many they face, but that is what it is. Yeah, I mean, sample size is everything there. But uh, like we said, I think I think the Eagles' ability to run the ball is going to be a huge issue for the Chiefs to deal with, and that includes the RPO. The RPO is probably right at the top of that list. I think there's a good chance Jalen Hurts leads the Eagles in rushing on Sunday, and uh, if the if the Chiefs can't control him, then there's going to be a real problem. All right, time for the prediction. Uh, Dave Scaretta covers the Chiefs for Associated Press. Uh, we've got that we discussed a lot of the data here. Uh, how do you see Sunday? Yeah, I'm going to go back to right at the top of our conversation. I think 1-53, to 53, the Eagles have a better roster. I think they probably win it by a field goal. All right, Dave, listen, uh, have fun out there covering the game. We really appreciate you taking some time uh, to come on the Mike Missinelli Podcast. Thanks for all the information. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mike. It's the Mike Missinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Well, ladies and gentlemen, doesn't get any bigger than our next guest. Uh, he has been broadcasting the Eagles uh, uh, I, I've lost track of the years, but uh, all I know that this man uh, that we're about to interview is a legend beyond legends in this city. He is the great voice of the Philadelphia Eagles, the one, the only, Merrill Reese. Hello, Merrill. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Not as good as you because uh, you're uh, en route to, to Phoenix to cover another Super Bowl. Uh, so, Merrill, <laughs> let me ask you this because when they won the last one, um, we all took it and put it in a box and it was really nice. And, um, who knows when you're going to win another one. And lo and behold, within five years, they get to another one. And, and I'm curious to know how that, how that feels to you as a man who has broadcasted this team for so many years. It feels great. It, it really is a thrill. You know, Mike, I go back. My first Super Bowl was 1980. Uh, that was Super Bowl 15. And I remember getting on the plane it was actually 1981 when the game was played. Getting on the plane to go home the day after when they had lost to the Raiders in New Orleans, and I thought the guys were really going to be depressed. And they weren't. They were excited. They said, you know what? We just had to get to a Super Bowl to get that experience. Once we have the experience, we'll go back there next year and win that thing. Well, next year was a quarter of a century later in 2004. And really, they didn't win one until technically uh, 2018, after the 17th season. And and that was a great, great thrill. And here they are back again, uh, six, actually, technically six years later. Yeah, so what was that like? Let's talk about those those uh, barren years. They, they get there at 80, and then all of a sudden, uh, here comes this team uh, in the 90 uh, uh, that looks like it could get there and it doesn't get there. And, and it takes until uh, 2004 where they had to rebuild like a couple times during that thing. As you're broadcasting every year, you broadcast, I think, with a hope that the team will do something special. What were those years like for you as a broadcaster? Well, as a broadcaster, broadcasting NFL football is what I love to do uh, more than anything in the world. So I take each, each season separately, each game separately. And there were a few great seasons. I mean, I thought there was a great team, a great chance that one of Buddy's teams would have won it. I mean, go back to that Fog Bowl where they, they were really the best team in the league and they rolled into Chicago thinking they could have a real good chance to beat the Bears and move on. And then the Fog came and, and destroyed that. So there were some very, very good teams along the way. Uh, I thought another great chance 
was 2002. You will remember that last game at Fedford Stadium where Donovan McNabb's favorite receiver became Rondé Barber, and they lost to the Tampa Bay Bucks. It was a killer. That one was a killer uh, beyond, um, you know, it's one of the most disappointing losses, and if not the most in Philadelphia sports history. Sure. Uh, so uh, with, with your frame of reference of, of the four Super Bowl teams and those teams that didn't make it but were really good, uh, how do you stack this team? Because we were talking about this in, in, the, in the first segment. We we're comparing the personnel. We we're comparing the, the production. Um, is this, in your mind, the best team you've ever seen? With, in a Philadelphia Eagle uniform. Yes, it's the best team, and it's the most complete team. You can't really say that this team has an overt weakness that stands out. Every time something has happened where they were at a glitch, say, in stopping the run early in the season, they went out and bolstered it, brought in Linville Joseph and Indomitian Sue. So they have addressed every area right before the season began. They went out and got C.J. Gardner-Johnson, as a, as, a, as a safety that has really helped. They picked up Bradbury in the offseason, which gives them two very good corners. And maybe the biggest move of all, well, there were two. One in free agency, Hassan Reddick. That has proved to be enormous. And the other was the draft day trade for A.J. Brown. And you put them all together with the development of Jalen Hurts, who has really become a top-five quarterback in this season, and you have the makings of the best Eagles team ever. The only area, people say to me, is this the best pair of wide receivers they have ever had with Brown and Devontae Smith? And I say yes. And even my partner in the booth, Mike Quick, agrees, because when he teamed up with Harold Carmichael, that was his rookie year, and he only had 10 catches, and it was near the end of Harold's career. Yeah, I agree with that. I And their whole offense, you know, I don't think I've ever seen a more balanced offense. Uh, but let's talk about the quarterback. And now you saw the same things that we saw. And coming into this year, we had no idea. Uh, so uh, I'm curious, no, no, you, you, you've seen his progress broadcasting every game. Uh, were you surprised? And, and what have you seen with Jalen Hurts? I'm surprised that he developed as quickly as he has. I have been a Jalen Hurst guy since I saw him at Alabama and Oklahoma and was one of the people who jumped off my chair when they drafted him because I always thought he was special. I think his arm strength has been underestimated. There's not a pass that he can throw, and he's athletic. They say he's a triple-threat quarterback, arm, legs, and mind. And the mind is a big part of it because he's exceptionally bright. He's totally dedicated. He is at that facility all hours of the day and night looking over game tape. He went out and worked with Tom House, a quarterback guru in California, last offseason, adjusting his mechanics, his footwork, and he has come back and made an enormous jump from year two to year three. So he is he is exceptional. But And the other thing, Mike, is, and you've heard this a lot, he's a leader. Every guy on that roster, offense and defense, reveres him. They, he sets a great example. He's not a particularly vociferous guy. He's not a doesn't give them pep talks, but they they just respect them and they know how much he demands from himself and they want to give him every bit of support they can. He's the most serious twenty four year old I've ever seen in my life, and, I, and I'm not a young guy anymore. <laughs> so, like, it's amazing the, how, how serious he conducts himself with and how mature he's like a forty four year old. 
Yeah. You know, they say, uh, they, they talk about the, what, what do you do in the off season? What are your hobbies? His profession is football. And I think his hobby is football. He is all football all the time. Uh, there was a story today I was reading, and it's a subject that's been out there for a while, but um, I think Howie uh, addressed it for maybe the first time yesterday in his media gathering about uh, drafting Jalen and, and what it did to Carson Wentz, and he kind of took a shot at, at, at Carson. And obviously you were, you were uh, living through that whole situation like we all were. Um, uh, tell me what your thoughts were when that transition was taking place. They had just signed him to another uh, Wentz, meaning to a big contract. They draft this guy, and Wentz seems to fall apart with it. Uh, did that shock you, or what was your reaction to that whole uh, sequence? I'm not sure he fell apart because of that. What I saw was a quarterback who, going into that 2017 season, had come off a great rookie year, and then at the time he went down against the Rams, he would have been, the, at that point, he was the likely MVP of the league. And then he goes down, and Nick Foles leads the team to the Lombardi Trophy. Then they come back the next year. And first of all, when he had that injury, it just wasn't a torn ACL. It was a torn ACL, a torn MCL, and structural damage in the knee. He came back the next year. He couldn't do the things that he physically did before that injury, but he refused to accept the coaching. Doug wanted him, he drove Doug nuts. Doug wanted him to drop back and get rid of the ball quickly. He'd stand back there. Uh, Mike, you could count to 14 Mississippi, and he was still holding the ball, or he was trying to run around. He had lost a step. And then that year, he hurt his back. He broke a, or cracked a vertebrae. He was never physically the same quarterback. Now, there are quarterbacks who play with all kinds of injuries, but they adjust their games. He refused to believe that he had to adjust his game, and he really did not take the coaching that Doug was trying to give him. Doug Peterson gave him every shot he possibly could yeah. to improve, and, and Doug turned out to be very frustrated. Yeah, and, and how he said uh, yesterday that he, he, he couldn't imagine a guy that didn't want to compete. So he's leading the fact that that also was on top of it, that he, he just didn't want to compete against uh, 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 Jalen Hurts, and he felt offended that they, they had drafted him. Uh, let, let's, uh, let's talk about your, uh, your career a little bit and, and how you approach the profession because you, you do react a lot like a fan does, and, and your frustration is evident when something bad on the field happens. Uh, I, I'm curious to, to know, uh, like when you got into this, that, uh, how you were going to approach this job and, and also whether, uh, the team has ever been upset with something you've said. You know, it's, it's interesting, but I, uh, this was, you know, once I realized that I wasn't going to someday quarterback the Eagles, this, this was my next dream. And, uh, I, I went to college, majored in communications, done a lot, did a lot of football play-by-play -play and all sports, really. But football was always my first love. And when I was fortunate enough to, to move into this job after doing post, pre- and post-game shows and color analysis, uh, when I finally became the play-by-play -play voice of the team, my approach was just work as hard as I possibly can to prepare. I go through the memorization. My wife goes through the house all week with flashcards uh, you know, she'll yell out uh, number nine, and, and I'll yell back uh, Juju Smith-Schuster. You know, and I, I'll do this all week. And and then I wanted to be as sharp as I possibly could. I wanted to be as 
fundamentally sound as I could be. But I have a lot of respect for Eagles fans. They know their stuff. I'm not out there to wave pom-poms. Yes, I want them to win. I love the team. I've always been an Eagles fan. But if I want to be honest, I, I, I am not there to sell tickets. If they play poorly, I say they play poorly. I, I will, uh, if I think the coach made it. Mike, I want to tell you something. Uh, Super Bowl 52, right before halftime when they're down at the one-yard line and with, with seconds to go, and all of a sudden I see them lining up, I say, no, they've got to take the three points. They, they've got to take the three points. The Patriots are going to receive the kickoff in the second half, get the three points, and then they run what we call the Philly special, and it's amazing, and it, and it has a big impact in the game. But as soon as Nick Foles caught the ball, Mike said to me, that's why you're up here and Doug's down there. And, and I still think it was a bad call that turned out to be a great play. Yeah, I mean that's the good the, the good part about you. You 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 put it out there like everybody's thinking. Everybody's thinking the same thing. They, they take the three. What are you doing? Uh, so so with that, have you? Because I've I've worked for a radio station and and we had team rights and and the whole bit. And you occasionally get called in. Hey, you said the team's not happy that you said this. Has that ever happened to you? I mean, your 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 pet your legendary status. So I can't imagine it. It did. But it has it. No, it, it honestly, I've never heard from the team about anything that wasn't positive. I will tell you this, uh, that that I would say that it took me 10 years. Ten. This is 46. So it probably took me 10 years to start to say what I really felt. But as you go along, not that you feel not that you feel impenetrable or not that you feel that that you, you you're you're impossible to replace but you feel more and more comfortable in saying what you really believe because they know where I'm coming from. And I would think that if somebody drops a pass and I say, boy, that's a ball they really should have caught, they'll know. They'll know that that was a ball they really they, – they feel the same way. But now, Mike, don't get me wrong. I, I know where to stop. I have never criticized – I've never said this coach should be fired. I've never said – the, the closest I came, I think, was in the last five minutes of Chip Kelly's last year when they were playing the Lions on Thanksgiving Day. And I think I said – I think I said at that point, the thing that I am most thankful for today – is that there are only five minutes and fifteen seconds left in this classic? Uh, uh, so, um, I, you know, there's this legendary story about you. We're talking to the great Merrill Reese. A legendary story where you uh, prepare uh, one of your preparation techniques, and I'm still wondering. I'm wondering if you still do it. Is, is that you, you kind of lay in a bathtub and get the voice going? Uh, do, do you still do that? And, and uh, <laughs> when that story came out, how did that affect? The, had the way people looked at you. People were asking me what my rubber ducky's name is. <laughs> but but no, I don't. I don't. It all comes from something I learned many, many years ago when I was doing Freedom of Television with Billie Jean King. And Billie Jean King used to taught me something called psycho-cybernetics. And she used to say that when she goes to a big tournament like Wimbledon, she will sit in the room very calmly and envision that she's winning points and she can feel the, the grass courts and smell the aroma of, of what it's like there. And the theory is that 
what we imagine is as important in our frame of reference as what actually happens. So I would just sit there and envision the game and identify the players. And to be honest with you, I, I don't take the, the long bath. I take a quick shower the day of a game. But I will sit there for a few minutes before we leave for the stadium, and I will envision you know, the ball being handed off to Isaiah Pacheco as soon as I see number 10 and, and go through a drill with, the, with all of the numbers and the things I might see. And I'll say to myself, STDD, which stands for time, score time down distance. I'll go through kind of a drill. And, and I will do that just to sharpen my mind and get everything set so that when it occurs and there's all kinds of craziness going on around me, that I'm able to feel a sense of calm and do my job and give a clean description. Meryl, for the people that may not know this, you're, you're, how, what was your first step to become the, the uh, to get involved with an Eagles broadcast? Now, because, you know, there's a lot of people that come up and you know, they take different paths now and... Uh, uh, you know, you obviously had the training to do it. What was the first step, the, the first major step that broke you through in this business? I mean, if, if you want to go back, I was a naval public affairs officer when I graduated from college. And then I went to it, came out and I was a, uh, I, I couldn't get a job for about a year, just knocked on doors and finally got one uh, in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, where I did everything. The disc jockey show, the news, the talk show, Little League Baseball every night. And I did that for a year. And after that, I, I was making $65 a week. I came up here, Mike, in your home area uh, of Levittown, Pennsylvania, and I went to WBCB. And uh, I became a, a newscaster. I never got to do games here because a guy by the name of Vince Reed had been doing them for a long time, and I just did news. Finally, I got into to WWDB in Philadelphia, and it was it uh, it used to be a jazz station, and then it became a talk station. And uh, when it was a when it was a music station, I went to the program director. My shift was, I would come in and do the news from from one until eight. I did them with Sid Mark. He used to do Friday with Frank. So I went to the program director and I said, you know, uh, how about if I come in and do sports every morning? From at five minutes of sports at six, seven, eight, nine, he said, "This is not a sports station; it's a music station." I said, "Listen, how about if I come in and do those sports casts for free?" He said, "You know, sports might work in the morning." So I would get up <laughs> at five thirty and come into the station, and I would do the I would do the news, the uh, the sports five five minute sports casts. Go home, give tennis lessons. And come back and do the news all afternoon. And that's what I did. And then finally, somebody told me that WIP was auditioning people to do summer replacement with, for Charlie Swift. Charlie Swift was the Eagles, was the sports director and the voice of the Eagles. And uh, I was one of a bunch of, you know, maybe 80 people who went in an audition. And I kept getting called back, called back, called back. And finally, they called me in and they said, Charlie's leaving for a month's vacation next week. You've got the job as his summer replacement. And so I went back to WWDB and I said, listen, I'm, I'm going to be doing that for the next month. Um, you know, I understand. They said, no, you can still work here. So for one month, I did the, the morning sports at WIP, left there at 11 o'clock, got to WWDB and did news until 8 o'clock at night. 
And the first thing I remember at WIP and their morning man was a disc jockey who owned the city by the name of Ken Garland. And uh, the first sportscast they did at 6.05 on a Monday morning, I was I was scared to death. because I He was in a different studio. I didn't even see him. But I had grown up listening to him. And what if he hated me? So I take a deep breath, and I go in and I do the sports, and I say, it's 10 minutes past 6, time for the start of the Ken Garland Show, and I cut my mic. And, and there's maybe three seconds of silence, and I, it, sounded, it felt like an hour. I thought I turned the station off the air. And suddenly Ken came on, and he said, and I remember this like it was yesterday, he said, wow, if I were Charlie Swift, I would hurry home from vacation. And before I left the station that day, they signed me to a contract to do the pre and post game shows and the Ed Kayat Coaches Show. Wow. That's a great story. I love those uh, old stories. And, of course, WBCB in Levittown, you are now the owner of, which is really an uh, interesting part. And you mentioned Vince Reed. Yeah, managing partner. A partner. That's right. You, uh, with Mr. Dion, correct? With Pat Dion, sure. Yes. Yeah, I know, Pat. So, uh, yeah, you brought up uh, Vince Reed. Yeah, Vince broadcast. I played on a very good high school basketball team that went to the state title game, and he broadcast that game. And I have a cassette sure. of the final moment to that game with with Vince Reed on it. Wow. So I, I knew him uh, uh, pretty well. Uh, so uh, last question, Merrill, is, uh, you know, your soundbite is now going all over the country. I'm watching the NFL Network, and, and, they, and they play a flock of eagles. It's just flying out to Phoenix. And so I, I'm curious to know how that popped in your head. I, I, I'm curious to know how, how a lot of things pop into my head. But it, 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 it just came out. It just came out. Well, you know that organic things are the best, uh, and and so uh, you know that's that's probably going to they're probably going to be playing that for for a long time, uh, especially uh, if the Eagles win this game. And then, so that's my next question: how how do you feel uh, about this game? I think the Eagles are the better team. I really do, but you don't really know because Patrick Mahomes is is an unusual quarterback. He's a magician. And I don't care about his sprained ankle. They can duct tape his legs together, and he's still going to hop out of there and do something. And Andy's been around for 24 years. And they have they have two great defensive players in Fred Clark and Chris Jones on that defensive line. But if you look at them department by department or position by position, the Eagles are the better team. I think if the Eagles play, as Tiger Woods used to say, his A game, if they play their A game, they'll win this game. But if they turn over the football, and you know <clears throat> Super Bowl 52 turned when Brand, uh, Brandon Graham created the fumble from Tom Brady. If they have a, a turnover here and there, it could change everything. This game could go either way. I think it's going to be very tough, but I think if the Eagles play well, there will be a parade here next week. Wow. Uh, I think, uh, interestingly enough, I think uh, more people think that than not, which scares me a little bit because the Eagles as a favorite, you know, you kind of get conditioned to, okay, they're going to win this game easy. And if if it doesn't happen, I I just fear the disappointment in this city uh, that's going to happen. so, Merrill, you, you, like, there are a lot of people. Mike, we, we agree. Because <laughs> yes, it's, it's not going to be good. I, I was going to say, we agree because I get nervous. 
I get nervous when people tell me, oh, they're going to run away with this game. They're going to beat the Chiefs by two touchdowns. That makes me nervous. Yeah, it might be a Philadelphia thing, but you're right. It's like, oh, really? You know, now, now we're setting ourselves uh, up for the ultimate disappointment. Uh, so, Merrill, the last question is, how long are you going to do it? There's a lot of media, media legends that have said, yeah, it's time to move on. And uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering, if, do you have that in your mind, how long are you going to do this? Mike, I want to do this forever. I honestly... You know how much I love to play golf. I mean, I I, I, I could play 70 rounds a, a summer, a year. I love it. But I love doing this more than anything that I do. So I just want to keep doing it. And I think they're going to have to remove me with a crane. <laughs> well, that's good news for a lot of people. Uh, listen, my best wishes to you out there. I know you're going to be busy, uh, Super Bowl time. And, uh, you know, this is... Uh, uh, I, I don't know if you get nervous, but this is a big call. Yeah, the Super Bowls are the biggest calls you can make. So uh, I'm, I'm quite positive you'll, you'll, you'll kick it in the butt. Can I tell you something? Sure. I get nervous before the first preseason game. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't get any bigger than this. So well, uh, soak the moment in and, and deliver your best, brother. Thanks, Mike. Fun being on with you. Thank you, Merrill. Take care. It's the Mike Mussinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All right, thanks so much to the legend, uh, Merrill Reese. Uh, and Merrill, of course, uh, will be broadcasting the game. And uh, a lot of people like to put Merrill on and turn off the, the national broadcast. Whatever you do, uh, it's going to be a, an interesting listen. Uh, okay, now it is time. Three questions, Super Bowl edition. Three questions for Mikey Miss. But producer Darren takes the stage. Darren? All right, here we go. By the way, can't wait to hear what Merrill's final call will be uh, with the, you know, hopefully the Eagles win. Can't wait to hear what Merrill has in store. The Eagles have won the Super Bowl. <laughs> everybody does the Merrill. I think everybody as a whole does. Yeah, I know. I know. That was terrible, Merrill. But, you know. Well, and most most people's Merrills are terrible. I think <laughs> everybody does a Harry and everybody does a Merrill. And I think as a whole, most people do Harry better than they do Merrill. But onward and upward. Here we go to three questions, Super Bowl edition for Mikey Miss. Mike, first question, what would be the ultimate Super Bowl halftime show for you? Mm. Well, this is an interesting question uh, because I have so many different musical tastes uh, that uh, I would <laughs> listen, I would start with Michael Jackson, right? The king of pop would have to be uh, the, the headliner of the of – the, uh, of the Super Bowl show. Uh, and then I would go Bowie Prince back to back coming out. Very strong. Uh, and then I would roll out as a, the, the final crooner. I would roll out Sinatra to croon, to croon everybody back into their seats. So Michael Jackson, Bowie Prince, Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett to close it out. That is quite a spectrum of musicians <laughs> you have there. Um, I don't, as much as I love Sinatra and Tony, I don't know if that fits the Super Bowl, but this is, it was uh, your question, your ultimate halftime show. So there you go. And that is quite a spectrum. Well done there. All right. Question number two uh, new, new Heights, I think it's called the Kelsey Brothers. They had the uh, a podcast together. It really is pretty, it really is good. Uh, and it's widely popular so quickly. Mike, 
anybody in the world, past, present, living, dying, give me one person. Who would be your ultimate? I'm going to take myself out of the equation here. I know you would go right to me first. All right? But if I'm not available to you, who is your ultimate podcast partner? Jesus. <laughs> what? Yes. I just think how informative that would be. Me and Jesus. <laughs> me questioning Jesus. Questioning why things happen. The only problem is I couldn't argue with Jesus. Yeah. There wouldn't be like a give and take where he would go, Mike, you're full of crap. Like, Jesus wouldn't do that. But I, I it would be so... I sit there with Jesus. All the answers of the world. All the wisdom of the world. I mean, I just think about how good that podcast would be. Uh, but since I probably can't have Jesus, um, yeah, you can't. If you can't argue with him, you can't have him as a partner. I, I would, go, I would go with Charles Barkley. Obviously, I would go with Charles Barkley. Uh, we've had a, a great rapport over the years. I think the shows that we've done together have been really kind of magical, just because of him, not because of me. But you can talk to him about anything, and most of the time, he's full of shit. And you can tell him he's full of shit, and, and then you can argue why he is, and then he would come back with something and tell you why he wasn't. Uh, and so uh, I've always had fun with Charles and being able to talk to him about everything, sports and uh, and life. Uh, and uh, so many of his opinions are misguided, but so many of them make sense. Uh, I think Charles and I would be a dynamic podcast. Yeah, believe me, I'm working on that. I'm still working on that. That might happen before I die. Oh, he'll certainly uh, be a guest with us soon as we get into uh, as we transition into the Sixers in the coming weeks as well. You yeah. guys have always had a great report. That's a good answer for you. All right, here we go. Question number three. Mike, a lot of Super Bowl parties on Sunday. What is more essential to a good Super Bowl party? Great food or good drinks and booze? Well, it's it's great food. Uh, and here's why. Because if you drink in, in, um, and you go overboard in drinking, then you, you mess up the whole experience. I mean, you're, you're, you're looking at it as a slobbering mess. But you can eat as much food as you want. You may feel bloated. But uh, – when I get nervous, I will nosh. Like I, I will go back a hundred times just to get something. My mouth—it's—it's—it's it, it's, uh, it's pacifying in a lot of ways. So the the food has to be good. The food has to be plentiful, but it also has to be in small. Like you can't have like uh, you, you got to have small moderation things. Like you can grab a, a an egg roll, or you, you know, like you do a little cheesesteak, or the, the, you know, the French fries are out there. Little things that you can pick on. All day wings. You, you keep going back and forth. You grab a couple things, and then uh, as the as the heat gets uh, gets hotter during the game, you can always go back with the food because it's a way really of kind of diverting your craziness. So I would definitely go food over booze. Now you can have a beer early on, maybe you have a glass of wine with uh, you know you have some meatballs out there. Some grandma makes some meatballs. You have a glass of wine with that, but going overboard ruins the experience, especially when you're with somebody who is going overboard booze-wise and getting crazy and loud, and you're trying to focus on the game. So I go food over booze every time. Totally agree. Uh, particularly, I mean, it's if it's not as big a celebration if your team's not in it, and you got to go to work the next day. So, yeah, definitely food. Uh, but I think, I think booze will probably take over. Something tells me at a lot of Super Bowl parties in Philly this weekend. There you go. That's three Super Bowl questions for Mikey Miss. All righty. It is time now uh, for our parting shot, and the parting shot will not be the parting shot because we're going to have our score predictions for the game. But uh, I want to deliver this as a parting shot, and it's a semi-serious thing, but it, I, I don't mean it to be overly serious. It's just kind of something that I think I need to, to state. Uh, if you've been following me on Twitter 
you know that I've touted this new documentary that's on Showtime, and it's called Stand. And it's about the life of uh, a former basketball player named Chris Jackson, who converted to Islam and became later in his career uh, Mahmoud uh, Abdul Rauf. Now, I was covering college basketball uh, at the time of his heyday. I started covering, uh, I was the national college basketball writer for the Inquirer starting in 1988. He came on the scene in 1989. And he was a just just an unbelievable dominant player. He was like Pete Maravich uh, for LSU, and he went to LSU. He's, a, he's from Gulfport, Mississippi. He was a six foot guard. He was a McDonald's All American. Nobody really knew that much about him, and he just burst on the scene. He goes to LSU, and in his third game, I think he drops fifty on Florida in an SEC game. He was that dominant of a player. He had everything going for him. He had the, the, the crossover before Allen Iverson. He had the pull-up jumper. His range was like 35-foot range. He, his, his handle was so good. He had Kyrie handle in getting to the basket. And covering college basketball at the time, you just you look at this guy and you go, oh, my God. He, he was must-see TV. And uh, so uh, he winds up, uh, he, he had Tourette's syndrome as well. So if, if you remember him at the time, he was playing. He would have these very strange tics, uh, involuntary um, uh, uh, movements in his body and his eyebrows and his head, and his and, and he would twitch a lot. Um, and uh, as fate would have it, I I, I uh, in fact covered one of his games. His second year at LSU, they played Villanova in the first round of the NC tournament, NCAA tournament, and they they beat Villanova. Villanova didn't have a great team that year. They had guys like Lance Miller and uh, Chris Walker and uh, guys like that. They weren't uh, an exceptional Villanova team, and LSU beat them. And LSU in the next game, which I also covered, they got beat by Georgia Tech's Lethal Weapons 3, which was uh, Kenny Anderson, uh, Dennis Scott, and Brian Oliver, who were the Sixers wound up drafting. But it was a golden era of college basketball. He was a sensation. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and and everybody talked about the guy. Now, uh, you have to... Uh, to totally understand his situation, you have to see the documentary. And I highly recommend it. It's called Stan. And what happened to, to, to Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf is he got in the NBA. He was the third pick in the draft. And he converted to Islam. And his dedication to Islam was, was so much that he took it to a degree that a lot of Muslims say you don't have to take it. But he was the first guy really to sit down during the anthem to protest the oppression of black people in America and the prejudice that was going on. And um, it wasn't noticed at first. And it became noticed by a sports talk host in Denver, some old school guy who got offended that somebody was sitting down for the anthem. We've heard this theme many times before, because to a lot of people, it means the military uh, 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 commitment and and how uh, people died for the, the freedom, and that's what the flag stands for. Well, the flag stands for a lot more than that, not just that. You, you can protest what goes on in America without protesting or disrespecting the military. So he made a stand uh, of not to, uh, and he didn't want to make a fanfare, but he just started stretching while the rest of his teammates were standing. He was stretching, getting ready, and he thought that uh, he it couldn't go against his conscience to, to stand for, for the anthem. Well, uh, it changed his life for the, for, the, for the worst because the sports talk host in Denver blew it up. It became a national story. The NBA then got involved. Uh, every national reporter, like the Dan Rathers of the world, were reporting on it. They would come to the shoot-around, and, and they would ask him about it. And he uttered two words. That messed up the rest of his life. 
he said that uh, the flag in a lot of ways stands for tyranny and oppression. And what he was talking about was the, the disrespect in this country that was being given to African-Americans and minorities, which he wasn't wrong about. But when people hear those words, they say, well, you're, you're not American. And there was this massive protest, which then affected the NBA and their business. So the NBA came in and they suspended them. And they said, you won't play again unless you stand for the anthem. Now, uh, he steadfast and, and said, I'm not standing. And then met with uh, some Muslim imams who said, there's another way that you can attack this. Uh, and uh, you're supposed to respect the laws. The Islam, uh, Muslims respect the laws of countries and the rules of, of uh, a certain uh, individual. So uh, he was decided then to stand. But he stood in prayer and uh, put his hands in front of his face, and he prayed the Quran as the, the national anthem was going on. So, so basically, the Denver Nuggets turned on him, and even though he was the team's leading scorer that year, they traded him in midseason to get rid of what they called the distraction, and they traded him to the Sacramento Kings, who then benched him, and clearly in the NBA, there was this edict to push him out of the league. That's what happened to his career. Years later, you go with Colin Kaepernick, the same thing happened. And you wonder about the progress that we have made. Uh, so uh, here's what I'll have to say about that. In, in this country, real change, needed change, most of the time has come through protest. If we look back at the protests of the Vietnam War and why we got out of the Vietnam War, it was because college kids rose up and caused enough of a protest to change things. Protest in this country has been good for real change. And I couldn't help but notice that a bunch of white college kids could affect change to get us out of the war in the Nixon time, and that when a black man protests, it doesn't have the same effect, which means we have a really long way to go. And frankly, if you watch this documentary, you should feel shame about the way Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf was treated. Now, to his credit, he has, uh, he has turned an avenue to the point now where he goes out and he lectures and he holds basketball camps and he, he had his house burned down by the Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi. You have to see what happened to this man because he stood up for what was in his heart for what he thought was right. Now, and, and I will just say this because this, I, I don't even want to dilute his cause. But, but I do want to say that on a much smaller level, I was trying to chastise the same way. I always try to make my radio shows informative to the point where I always had the best intentions for, for what this country was about. And if you remember, obviously, uh, I, I, I had a lot to say um, about the, the former president and where this country was going under that former president. We weren't making progress. We were going back in time, especially in racial relations. We were almost going back to the Confederacy. And so um, I, I talked about that. Now, right-wingers would write the station all the time. And I was chastised a lot, called into the office. So basically, my management at that radio station decided, instead of backing me, they kind of completely backed out on me. And, and that's they're, they're a business, and, and that's perfectly fine for what, how they want to run their business. But I will just say this as a parting shot. Uh, and, it, you know, it, again, I, I don't want to dilute the real 
uh, protests and Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. But I will say that, to me, it's priceless to know that I can look myself in the mirror uh, or go to sleep knowing that I stood by my principles and um, it's those who can't stand up to their principles, those who can't recognize their principles, those who can't embrace real change to make society a better place. They're the people that lose. And that's my parting shot for today. All right. So let's uh, now bring it down to our final predictions. Darren, I've been thinking about this for a really long time. And I originally thought that the Eagles would cover. And I thought something like 27 to 24. And now I am down to the Eagles winning the game, but only winning it by a point, which means they're not going to cover. I think this is going to be a nail biter. And I think the Eagles are going to have to win this game something like 27 to 26 or 31 to 30 somewhere in that area. That's how close I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be whisper thin. What say you? So you, you're telling me I'm going to lose a few months of, off my life uh, by say, I don't know, 10 o'clock Sunday night. All right. Not if you bet the money line, <laughs> because that's what I'm doing. I'm taking the Eagles on the money line. I am not going to – it's too tempting to say the Eagles are going to cover this game. It's too easy to say they're going to cover it by a point and a half. There's a line there for a reason. They may cover by a point, and then you're going to be really upset. (laughs) Well, well, first of all, as long as you're using your BetRivers app, I don't care which way you bet it. But, I mean – one point uh, that would be astounding to me that uh, I know Vegas, like I talked about earlier, that line is there because they don't want to get it to three, but just, you know, they're always spot on so many times. It's, it's kind of frightening. I see I do see the Eagles winning Mike. I've had them winning by double digits since they won the NFC championship game. I'm not talking a 30 point blowout, uh, but I do think they would. Win. I, I'm kind of settled on um, a touchdown. I got them at 33, 26, I think they're the better football team. I know they're the better football team. Yes, Mahomes is the best player on the planet, and he's going to make some plays on Sunday that are just going to make you, you know, it's going to make the blood rush out of your out of your uh, head. But the Eagles are the better team. They're the best team in football on both lines of the scrimmage, both uh, sides of the line of scrimmage. I think that ultimately will win the game for them, like it won the game in the other previous two postseason games. Thirty-three twenty-six. The Eagles win. Uh, and I would like to uh, implore the mayor to have the parade on Tuesday instead of Wednesday so I don't have to change my flight to Punta Cana. <laughs> All right. We have we have yet to determine how we are going to cover in a podcast the uh, championship parade. So uh, uh, keep that in mind. Now, um, I, I, as I talked about it, the three questions now are still in my mind. And uh, I'm picturing a podcast between me and Jesus. <laughs> and uh, knowing how I handle... Uh, back and forth with people, whether it be callers or whether it be somebody that I was interviewing or on the air, could 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 in a podcast of Jesus, could I say something like, come on, Jesus, you know that's totally wrong. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> you couldn't say that. <laughs> oh, Jesus, Jesus. First of all, you couldn't have it with him because you can't argue with Jesus. You argue with everybody. You argue with me for 40 minutes before every goddamn podcast. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. He, he he would turn to me and go, and say, uh, "Mike, I'm the Prince of Peace." 
Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. let's close it down on a laugh. That's today's podcast. Everybody have a great rest of the day. We're coming at you with one more podcast. That's right. Saturday morning, we are going to go over some proposition bets and have a little fun with it as we lead it. It's the final day before the actual big game. So stay tuned for that. You can catch me on Twitter, MikeMiss25. Uh, you can email me at uh, Mike at MikeMiss.com. And uh, what else? What else should I tell the people? I just want to say thanks, everybody, for hanging with us all week. We've been pumping out a lot of material for you. Hopefully, uh, we'll have a few more extras for you next week as well. Go Birds, man. Go Birds. Go Eagles. We'll check you out tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Mike Bessinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.